Um, so I just want you to think about one basic assumption behind the phrase, just Google it. If, we're, if we tell someone to just Google it, what do we assume that they will be able, uh, you know, uh, what do we assume about that person that they actually would be able to just Google something? During the pandemic, which is digital poverty and digital inclusion. The focus of our conversation today will be access to connectivity and devices. Jamen, altså, det digitale kan jo helt klart bidrage med, at der kommer flere målgrupper ind. Altså, det, det kan vi helt klart se. Altså, three legs of a stool when it comes to digital inclusion. The first is access. Do people have broadband internet at home? The second, digital devices, right? Are people trying to do everything from a smartphone? Do they have a tablet? Do they have a laptop? a Chromebook for their child's school that might be locked down and doesn't let the parent access everything. And then the final piece is skills. Can people have the digital literacy? I don't know if you do this too, but sometimes my memory summarizes my experiences like scenes from a movie. The camera might be on a crane lowering from some upper corner of the room. I can hear and see things in the third person, some version of my experiences played back in a scene I can't imagine anyone would be particularly interested in as it doesn't really go anywhere. The details are sometimes not specific to one moment, but moments ingrained by patterns over a period of time. Stuff lived over and over. Here's here's where I'm going. This year, the kids hollering from the other room for an adult to plug in their headphones. Miss Henry threw a beat-up Chromebook speaker saying, we can't hear you if you're talking to us. And so many tiny fingers making that muffled click you get from a trackpad crushing answers in a math game a scene that was bizarre but that i also kind of loved um, was where my kids would attempt virtual gym class dancing or running in place while their siblings sat quietly in a headphone bubble transfixed by flickering squares on their chromebook a device that thrust the google wedge ever more deeply into our family narrative the whole scene was pretty rich this year but i thought almost every day about how lucky I was that they were on and connected. One of the questions that's come up over and over in my conversations about what our country is learning from a year in quarantine is what's being done in places where connectivity is keeping families from connecting at all. According to a 2019 report from Pew Research Center, 58% of black adults and 57% of Hispanic adults have a laptop or desktop computer. Compared with 82% of white adults and 66% of black adults and 61% of Hispanic adults have broadband access at home compared with 79% of white adults. The 2019 U.S. Census showed 36 million households that do not subscribe to a wireline broadband service. 26 million of these households are in urban areas. 10 million are in rural areas. The lower a household's income, the less likely they are to consistently subscribe to a wireline broadband service. Like many of you, I've wondered all year about what's being done, what more we can do to address this issue, one that's been around long before the pandemic. And I was lucky for the chance to sit with a group fighting hard to offer balance and equity in the city of Philadelphia. Meet these three. Hi, I'm Juliet Fink Yates. I am the Digital Inclusion Fellow um, in the Office of Innovation and Technology for the city of Philadelphia. Um, I have been working on digital inclusion activities since about 2001, so almost 20 years now. Great. My name is Paula Balboa. I'm the program and data manager with NDIA, the National Digital Inclusion Alliance. And I've been doing work in the digital inclusion field since 2013, 
starting at the Cleveland Public Library and the Technology Training Center and continuing at the New York Public Library uh, in their version of technology training before joining NDIA last year, uh, supporting digital navigators programs across the country. So I'm Andy Stutzman. I am the project director for civic technology at Drexel University's Excite Center. I've been working at Drexel since 2012, focusing on digital equity and digital inclusion initiatives. I'm also the chair of the Technology Learning Collaborative in Philadelphia, where we focus on supporting professionals in the digital equity and digital inclusion fields. Before we jump in, I want to encourage everyone to share this episode and the link to www.digitalinclusion.org. If you'd like to learn more about getting involved or you need some great data, like the stuff that I cited earlier in this intro. The first thing you can do is get informed about what's happening for you locally, and this is a fantastic place to start. Enjoy the show. This is No Such Thing, a podcast about learning in the digital age. I'm Mark Lesser. Hello. Oh Hi. my gosh. Hi. With the lawnmower. Hang on one sec. <laughs> Killing me. I want to talk about February, beginning of March of 2020. And um, there's, for obvious reasons, this conversation has become of interest, I think, to a lot of people um, around infrastructure and access. And um, and no better, I couldn't think of a better group to have together to talk a little bit about what did this, what did what did things look like in an American city? In this, you know, we can start in Philadelphia, but. Uh, Paolo, you bring with you experience from at least a couple of other cities in this realm. Um, you know, what did things look like from an access and inclusion perspective when we think about the infrastructure of what it takes to do, you know, fill in the blank, remote, uh, hybrid instruction, um, virtual learning, virtual anything. I mean, you know, people not being able to get to a bank, pay your bills, you know, what what did things look like um, in February of 2020 for, for let's say, Philadelphia, for starters? Um, Juliet, will you start us off? Sure. So um, I think that Philadelphia in some ways was um, a little bit ahead of the curve from a number of other places. Um, Philadelphia had invested um, city funds into its Keyspot network, which is its public computing center network. Um, and so there were funds that were helping to provide um, access and some training um, across the city to folks who may not have internet access at home. Um, and then the city also, through its um, Comcast franchise agreement, was able to create a fund called the Digital Literacy Alliance and a series of stakeholders who helped manage that fund that were partners across the city um, in community-based organizations, our internet service providers, our higher ed institutions. Um, and so we had... Um, we had a network of folks interested in this work. We had a fund through the Digital Literacy Alliance to seed some small grants for kind of innovative projects. And we did have a, a network of public computing centers managed within our Office of Adult Education. What happened though with COVID was that all the public spaces shut down. 
Um, so our libraries, our key spots, um, and this, um, it really amplified the need for people to have fully connected devices and internet at home. And that really shifted um, both the, the thinking um, internally in the city, but really, um, you know, the thing I think that really shifted was um, the awareness across the community about how important internet access was, um, that it no longer was something nice to have. Um, and so it really amplified this issue um, that it was critical. It was very important. People needed it. It was no longer nice to have. Um, and, and it really, um, it was something that those of us who've been doing this work, we all knew, um, but it helped move the needle um, tremendously. Um, so, and I will also add that I started right before the pandemic. So the city had um, thankfully invested in a position like a digital um, inclusion fellow to help mm. work through some of these issues, which I think um, not all cities probably had at that moment in time. So Philadelphia was potentially in slightly better shape right before the pandemic um, than some other places. Yeah. Are there, are there numbers, Juliet, that, that you can serve up off the top of your head about generally what that looks like? You know, can we, can we paint a sort of data picture for what access looks like in Philadelphia? So current, let me, let me say this currently as of 2019 American community survey data, um, which is the most recent data that we now have. So it's still over a year old, about a year and a half old. Um, 16% of Philadelphia households lack a broadband internet subscription. But when you drill down, only 50% of black households have broadband internet at the home compared to 74% of white households in Philadelphia. Um, it's estimated about 27% of K-12 households lack broadband internet through that data. Um, and income is not surprisingly the strongest determinant of internet access where 48% of households according to the 2019 data, making under 74,000 a year don't have internet at home, which is a very large number yeah. in Philadelphia. Yeah. And, and Paolo, how does that compare if you look, if you blow that out to the national level? Yeah. On the, on the national level, the, the, the data set that I've pulled up now is, is the income based uh, distribution of who has and who does not have internet access. Uh, before I dig into it though, I just want to really, really emphasize the issue of access versus adoption, right? Like access meaning just because there are wires in the ground, especially in big urban areas like Philly or DC or New York, the question is that the wires may be there, the infrastructure may be there, but who is still not, uh, who's, who still doesn't have a broadband subscription? And the answer usually is income-based. It's usually an affordability thing. So like Comcast Internet Essentials, uh, for instance, is a great example of a program to fill that gap to help primarily lower income um, consumers. So, from the, so, so to go into the national data set, uh, we have it binned out into, I'll start with between 50 and 75K. 25% uh, of households do not have wireline or home broadband. Going down between 25K and, and 50, that number jumps to 39% of households that don't have wireline access. And then finally, households 
that earn less than 25K, that number jumps even further to 54%. Wow. So it, it's really, I, which to me, like really emphasizes the fact that this is, this is an affordability issue yeah. uh, more than anything. And the other piece of that that goes along with that is, sure, you might, then you might get an internet connection through PHL Connect, but do you have a device? That's the other piece of this as well. Um, so Philadelphia, the school district of Philadelphia worked hard and there was a donation to the city as well to help establish that one-to-one computer to student ratio right at the beginning of the pandemic, which was really great, fast acting. But initially that last, that spring semester, you know, for students, really most families lacked a computer, a, a large majority of the, computer, the families lacked a computer or a device for the student to use. There was a lot of work trying to be done on cell phones. There was a lot of like printed materials that were trying to be distributed, trying to act up for that, but it was mm-hmm. really difficult. So we have a large distribution computer distribution program that's going on in Philly right now to help with that. Plus the city providing that one-on-one Chromebook um, connection with the students as well. Um, but that there's been, even with na- nationally, there's been a large um, computer distribution effort that's going on as well. Um, I believe through the, uh, Christina Foundation. Nationally, they're helping try to organize some of that work. Um, there's also a lot of local electronic recycling, ref- computer refurbishing groups that we've worked with as well to get computers out there to the families and individuals, adult learners, including you know, adult learners who are largely affected by this yeah. um, as well too. Why is it so hard for, like, this is hard for every city to to really get, get um, zeroed in on who is connected and who's not from from any any of your perspectives, why is it so hard to, to get this data? Yeah, the, the American Community Survey captures a snapshot, pretty macro level. But as far as like getting, as far as I think I can speak for all of us, as far as getting the data that we want, the data that we find meaningful to figure out like, you know, looking at connectivity as really like a digital equity issue. Um, I think it's so hard because there's, there might just be a lack of trust between community members um, and, you know, organizations, municipalities, right? Like if someone's going to door to door and asking some pretty personally identifiable information, um, that trust might not be there. That connection just might not be there. So like a place like where I work, NDIA, like we partner with like a, like a, a public library is a common community partner in our national network because mm-hmm. that's the sort of um, that's the sort of baseline organization that a regular community member can look at and be like, okay, I, th- I think I can trust them. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm good. I'm good with them. So if it's the library asking me, um, you know, some information about how much I make or uh, or other demographic data, they're more inclined to to open up there. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say there's also, and uh, Paolo, you might know more about this than I do, but um, there's also some confusion out there now when the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission back in 2018, reclassified the mobile connections as broadband. So the data is a little bit skewed about who really has a solid and quality internet connection right now through, through a lot of the surveys and the data that we get from the government. So, t- so say more about that. What what does that mean that they reclassified it as broadband for for those? So basically, who... if, if yeah, so if you have a cell phone, the gov- federal government considers you having a broadband connection, a, 
a fast internet connection, which is not always the case. I mean, uh, cell phone connections, in a lot, there are a lot of people that use cell phones as hotspots for their data connections as necessary, but it's unreliable. Um, you know, we deal with digital redlining that happens in cities where there aren't enough cell towers or cell connections in low-income areas for internet connectivity to be strong enough through a cell phone. So it just really kind of skews the data if you no, know, the federal government sees someone having a cell phone and counting that as a solid broadband connection. Yeah, what are the what are the hardest areas in Philadelphia to get a solid connection? Uh, North Philadelphia, I know, is one of the hardest ones. Hit uh, Northeast Philadelphia specifically, um, and Southwest might be as fairly affected as well. Um, but if northeast, it definitely is one of the, the hardest hit ones. As far, the hardest areas to find a cell phone connection. Yeah. There are air, there are parts of that that city where you you don't have a cell phone connection. You walk through walk through parts of that city and uh, talking to some of our programs that are out there. Um, yeah, you you know if you get off the bus and walk walk to work, you have to wait until you know you can get, get into the office till you have an internet connection. Um, so yeah. so it's. Yeah. So for 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 eighteen thousand ish um, uh, students under twelfth grade or at or under twelfth grade plus any of those who are being factored into having a solid connection because of uh, because they think that cell phones will do the trick. So for all of those young people, um, what is the partnership that this group represents? Um, what is it trying to achieve for for them? The city rapidly launched PHL Connected, um, which was really aimed to make sure that every K-12 student that didn't have reliable internet access was able to get one. And we had two um, solutions. So one was Internet Essentials. We um, did a bulk contract um, sponsored service agreement with Comcast Internet Essentials. And then um, a bulk agreement with um, T-Mobile hotspots, particularly for those students who um, were in unstable housing situations or for whatever reason couldn't get Comcast Internet Essentials Mm. um, directly to their home, which is a sizable number in a community, in a city like Philadelphia, where people are renting rooms um, in in homes or they might have um, limitations on getting a service directly to their home, um, which is, I think, a nuance that this pandemic has really shed a light on that, you know, direct fixed line broadband is not going to solve the solution for every person. You're going to need a couple different models. Mm. um, And the hotspots in particular have proven to be really effective, um, particularly for K-12 families who need a quick solution. Um, So we, we stood that up very, very quickly um, we were able to, as of um, as of today, uh, we've been able to provide a l- over a little over fifteen thousand internet connections um, in that sector, um, which has been really um, fantastic. Um, and you know, we did it through a lot of collaboration with our school district, our charter school sector, our independent mission schools. Um, it was an enormous um, effort and project that really required coordination of all of these different local educational agencies because they all had different needs and desires and wants. And so through working with them, you know, they uh, partnered with us and, and those, um, those schools 
in the district um, provided their students with the actual devices, the laptops or Chromebooks that they preferred. And then the city took on the contracts to provide the internet connectivity for them, set up um, a hotline through two on one um, and helped um, distribute, help them sort of create the mechanism to get the internet access that they needed. I want to talk about the process a little bit. In in this last year, there was obviously a lot of hustle to get a lot of machines out, and um, and you had some partners who, in Comcast and um, and it sounds like uh, T-Mobile, who had been already doing some work together in previous years, so. One question is, to what extent had the years kind of ramping up to this moment prepared Philadelphia differently than um, other cities where partnerships like this weren't sort of in midstream? So I think it helped a lot that we had um, some amount of infrastructure in place. And when I say infrastructure, I don't mean wires on the ground infrastructure. I mean people infrastructure in terms of a network of people doing digital inclusion work. Um, I think that one of the things that we were able to do rapidly um, was because we had the Digital Literacy Alliance in place and because we had some funds sitting there, we rapidly deployed those funds um, to get grants out to seed our digital navigator programs. Um, And we had a network of nonprofits who, you know, we already had communications, regular communications with around digital equity work um, who could apply. We knew a lot of who the organizations were. We knew the quality of those organizations um, and we could deploy sort of these seed grants to launch a digital navigator program really quickly to support um, everybody in Philadelphia with finding a device helping them figure out how to get their connectivity, helping them sort of um, if they needed to enroll or figure out how to get into or stay into their adult ed or workforce classes, help them do that. Um, so so in some ways, the city was really well primed to do that. I also think the city did have a number of good longstanding relationships um, over the years with our ISPs having to work through co- franchise agreements and other situations. Um, And so being able to quickly um, pivot to launch PHL Connected was another benefit of those relationships and finding um, the right partners and working with them to make um, an internet service work for people on the ground. And so we were able to do things like create um, really rapid escalation forms or situations where um, with Comcast, where we said like, listen, this family is hearing this and they're, you know, they're getting turned away, mm-hmm. even though they have a promo code that we gave them and really helping, particularly with our digital navigators, working with us on these issues to solve issues as quickly as we could um, and, and not in a vacuum. So those sorts of relationships, I think really, really helped um, push that needle. Yeah. And, and I, I, will, I wanted to, you know, give, I think, Andy and, and Paolo a chance to talk about that digital navigator piece, too. Yeah. You're Captain Segway. I was I was just about to ask. Um, Andy, how does my my question is, how does Drexel get involved? And um, my hope is that that 
leads us to a little bit of conversation about the digital navigator program, which um, I've heard only a little bit about, but um, I know is uh, a, a pretty remarkable effort. Yeah. So you know, Drexel, um, one of the reasons I came to Drexel in 2012 is we've had such a focus since 2010 um, with President John Fry coming in to take leadership at Drexel. His focus was to become the most civically engaged university in the nation. Um, and through that, we've really heavily got involved in multiple areas around civic engagement, but also in digital inclusion and digital literacy areas. We joined the city along with multiple nonprofits on the broadband technology opportunity grants that the city had gotten. Um, and um, that's why I came in to Drexel to work on that. And that, that program was called the Keyspot program where we built out multiple community-based computer labs, um, both in libraries and parks and rec, you know, you know, city owned areas, but also multiple nonprofits as well. Mm. And overall, we built over 70 uh, different computer labs throughout that time. Uh, well, so Drexel was involved with that. Um, I was involved with some on the technology side for that. And we also opened up our own key spot, which I, which I assisted with. And so that, that's how we became heavily involved with the digital equity, digital or digital inclusion issues yeah. and digital literacy issues. The one thing that I'll say throughout the years is that we really had, we're heavily focused on digital literacy and the idea of digital inclusion, creating spaces for people to, to find connections, to find access to computers, knowing that that internet problem was really difficult to solve. It was really the pandemic, I think, that really brought out the idea of digital equity, right? Mm. So we really need to create equity amongst all the people to provide that internet access, you know, bring them up to the level that everyone else is at, where they deserve to be at, and, and trying to focus on programs to create that equity in general, yeah. um, or overall as well. So the uh, when the Digital Navigator program came up, and we had talked about it at the national level, I was involved in a couple conversations at that. And then when the city and Juliet came up to the city and said, you know, hey, we want to start these programs. How do we do this? How can we get the, how much funding do we need? How, you know, how many, what, what organizations are ready to kind of get this going in? At Drexel, um, through the work I do as, you know, with civic technology, focus on community aspect of that, it, it, I was a perfect fit to get some students involved, answering phone calls, um, supporting supporting families and um, adults that were calling in with technical questions, helping them find that internet access, um, pointing them towards Comcast Internet Essentials or other, other opportunities or options there as well. And then the biggest thing we found, like, you know, majority of our calls are around computers and needing computer distribution. So the city did provide some funds that we could purchase some devices. But then we also worked with other organizations. One is called Nerd It Now, uh, Nerd It Foundation down in Wilmington, Delaware, who has been, who was training people actually how to actually refurbish computers and then distributing them out to nonprofits um, to assist with these types of issues as well. Nice. Yeah. And in Drexel, we also have a strong computer recycling program as well, taking internal computers. Um, from that and then working with Temple University who has probably the strongest computer recycling program out in the, in the nation um, and the work that they do. And we have modeled what we've done there. So in, in Temple, it was also very, very heavily uh, involved there with uh, Jonathan Lacko um, running the computer recycling program out there and heavily involved in actually distributing computers to the local Northeast Philly area, but also to um, other organizations too. Hmm. And how many, how many, um, how many digital navigators? So the digital navigators are um, describe the the role that I know um, plays a huge part in f 
fielding questions and sort of getting people connected. Um, tell us about the size of that cohort and um, did it change at all during COVID? So maybe I'll start and then Andy, you can talk about your specific um, program. So we funded three organizations um, initially through um, our Digital Literacy Alliance. Um, uh, one was Drexel's Excite Center in West Philadelphia. The other one was CMAC in South Philadelphia. And the third one was um, Community Learning Center, um, now called Beyond Literacy in North Philadelphia. They each had different models. And so in some ways, our approach with the DLA is to kind of seed and test different models. Um, and so um, Andy can talk a little bit about Drexel Excite Center, but, you know, they largely use their co-op students. Um, Community Learning Center in North Philadelphia is an adult literacy organization. They were using their social workers as their digital navigators. Mm. Um, so connecting directly with their um, regular kind of clients and their network in North Philadelphia and using their social workers um, as their digital navigators. And then CMAC is really focused on an immigrant and refugee community in South Philadelphia, particularly the Southeast Asian communities. Mm -hmm. um, and so they, they had a lot of language access capabilities, um, but also were deeply embedded in those communities in South Philadelphia and had partnerships with a community school in South Philadelphia. Um, and they were using VISTAs um, as their digital navigators um, predominantly. So what we did um, is we we kind of organized together really, and, and Andy took a huge lead on this in helping to sort of figure out we asked folks to set up um, a warm line, um, some sort of helpline that each agency would have that we could promote and, and make sure people knew where to call, that the phones would get, you know, either answered or responded to within a certain amount of time mm. that we could um, tell people. And, um, and then we asked that the digital navigators from our perspective as the city kind of handled, fielded basically kind of five things. One was helping folks identify where they could get a low cost or free computer helping identify where they could get low cost or free internet, depending on who they were and, you know, what this, their situation was, helping with sort of immediate tasks like filling out an online form or doing a telehealth visit if they needed that, um, making referrals to either digital literacy classes or workforce or adult literacy classes, um, and then the fifth one kind of came out, was adapted later as we realized people were um, may have had poor connections or were not sure what was going on, helping assess what was happening with their internet mm. and, um, and escalating that up as an issue, depending on who they were. So if it was a, a K-12 family that was having an issue trying to figure out, well, how many people are in the family? Maybe we need to get them some extra hotspots through PHL Connected and trying to problem solve sort of the, the internet connectivity speed issues or, or what other issues may be happening in the home. So those are kind of what we, as the city, kind of hoped. And we collected data on, on a lot of those points um, to kind of figure out like the scope of what was what was going on. And then I will just add that we did add two additional organizations got funded um, through the Knight Foundation. Mm. One is Inglis, um, which helps people with disabilities. Um, and another one um, was called Ellenesque, um, which is in sort of the Kensington area of, of Philadelphia, um, which is sort of lower Northeast. Um, 
and um, serves predominantly a Spanish-speaking population. So our goal was to sort of create a network that could serve a number of different populations and really be responsive to a number of high-need groups um, as much as we could. Yeah. Can you share some of the data? Yeah. So um, we don't have all the um, final year data from sure. everybody yet. So we just wrapped up one year, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, and so I, what I have is data from June 2020 through March 2021. Um, in that time, there were 600 total unique callers, um, which we are really excited about. Um, but there were uh, over 1,600 total caller interactions. So that means that people are calling back and forth because mm -hmm. it's going to take time um, to really get that support that somebody needs. Um, there were also over 150 devices provided to individuals during that time. Um, and, and there were um, 109 callers requesting language support, um, 160 households um, with K-12 students who needed support were supported by the digital navigators. Um, and then there's some other sort of unique things that we found. So on average, it was taking three to four phone calls per client to resolve um, an issue with somebody. Mm. Um, and that it could take eight to 12 days on average to resolve a ticket mm. um, with somebody. So what I think the digital navigator showed is how... Um, it's not a one-time call frequently. It really is a much more um, intensive, hands-on um, role that needs to be really highly responsive to the client. Yeah. yeah. And I'll say a lot of that is also because we're running what Juliet mentioned, but warm lines, basically, so that no one is there live answering a phone call or an email. Um, but uh, obviously can't answer an email live, but, <laughs> but yeah, there's no one there that was answering phone calls live. You had to leave a voicemail message. Um, for some programs like myself, you can actually text as well, but it, we tried to provide an answer within one day, like responding within one business day, if we could, but then you're still might be leaving a message back with, for someone. So it, two, it took two to three interactions often just to get someone live on the phone to actually interact with them and figure out what the, what the problem actually was and help them troubleshoot. And then there was also still follow-up on that. Yeah. Did, did you actually get the support you needed? Did, were you able to connect to the services we, we provided you and trying to get that feedback as well? Paolo, I'm curious from, from your perspective, if, if um, just to have you share uh, what you feel like since your involvement with the digital navigator program, um, what do you feel like is the, the outcome that you, you hope that every city could replicate, um, nationally and, and sort of what's been maybe out of the last year, what do you think is the most urgent, um, need when you look like a pro look at a program like this and, and what it needs to really, um, serve all of that, all of those humans at the end of the data that we just talked about, um, who are uh, in need of not just the connection, but also um, the training and support to sort of use that connection in uh, meaningful ways. 
Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Um, I think that, you know, a year plus into the pandemic now and, you know, almost a year anniversary on several different versions of digital navigators across the country, is that now that we can look at the data and now that we can sort of have this moment of reflection and figure out like, okay, like what's working, what's not working, and also what's going to happen, fingers crossed, as vaccinations increase and when we all start to come back in person, I think that one of the things that we can learn or that we have learned is that there is a strong need for this one-to-one contact with folks, right? Like it's, I I think of digital navigators uh, and being couched in like a lot of traditional reference librarian interactions, right? Like someone walks into a library, they say, I need help with X, Y, and Z. The librarian is there to say, okay, I, I have a working knowledge of resources and this is what I can point you to. What Digital Navigators is, is that a lot of these interactions from the data that NDIA has collected from the programs that we've had a part of over the course of the past year, is that most of these interactions are taking over an hour. So that's a Digital Navigator on the phone, having that high degree of empathy, having that high degree of patience, and just saying, like, I'm going to work with you, and we're going to get as far as we can today. And then we're probably going to schedule a follow-up call tomorrow or later this week. I think that moving forward, um, right, like as places like a public library, uh, public computer center starts to come back in person, is that I think that digital navigators and what we've learned from it is here to stay. In a traditional library, the, the working library staff, that reference librarian, they don't have time to sit with someone for an hour, mm-hmm. unfortunately, mm-hmm. right? Like we, we want them to. So I think that what we're, I, what I believe or what I want to see happen is to have someone, maybe they're called a digital navigator, maybe they're not, but having that sort of dedicated staff just available inside of a public computer center to, to you know, take appointments, right? Like have have that hotline and and maybe maybe the first interaction is still through the phone but perhaps the digital navigator will say like okay let's block off 30 minutes let's block off an hour for you to come in and for and for us to work through this issue together yeah i i um i love that vision uh and i hate to i hate to make um hate to give give more air to um to apple but um i almost as you're describing it it feels kind of like there should be a uh a genius bar that everybody can access um in order to get what they need um to 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 be included in what if if moving forward i mean the the um the thing that is just so striking to me when you think about this data and you think about um, you know the rights we have as citizens, it, as you're talking, it just makes me ask all these questions about like what are our rights under circumstances like this? Like if if the city and our infrastructure and our jobs are moving online, um, what does what does it mean? You know for for our rights do we have is it a just a a basic right as a citizen of uh as a citizen period of our country that um that you should be included have this access in order to be uh, a uh contributing part of of our workforce our democracy etc um 
you know, there's so many questions of this last last, you know, that that this last year has only just put a giant magnifying glass on that were obviously there for a very long time. But um, anyway, I'm I'm so grateful for the work of this program and the work of the city of Philadelphia, you know, and and many cities who are certainly um, giving their best effort toward this. But it's also um, it also characterizes what's left of just a, an absolutely enormous issue that um, we all need to continue to to focus on. Um, we haven't talked about the access centers, and I want to, before we hang up, just um, I want to ask about uh, what the access centers themselves look like and, and what they were um, put there to do. So the access centers stood up fairly rapidly. Um, most, but not all, were housed in recreation centers um, and in other um, nonprofits that had enough space to hold children. They were opened um, and provided with um, connectivity, um, many through hotspots that we um, both purchased through the city um, for each center um, so that K-12 students whose families needed to work and they didn't have a place to send them when the schools were closed um, could send them to a safe remote learning location. Um, So the access centers were um, many of Many of the same access centers were the key spots who had been operating um, in Philadelphia, um, and they were sort of transformed to allow um, young, uh, I shouldn't say K-12, it was really, I think, K through fourth grade. I'm not, I have to double check on that. Mm -hmm. Um, But our younger students who needed supervision um, to be able to go and, and do the remote learning there. Um, There were, there were some, um, there were qualifications on who could, um, you know, who could fill the slots first. So those um, whose families weren't going to be home um, are, are lower income students and also those who didn't have Internet access. Hmm. Um, but there was substantial effort to make sure that if they didn't have Internet access, that they were connected through PHL connected so that they could get Internet access at home. Yeah. So that in and itself was not a sole criteria for being able to um, go to an access center. Um, it was it was more about um, not having anybody at home to to support those children. Yeah. Do you know yet what will happen with the access centers as we hopefully um, you know at, at least taper off from the worst parts of this pandemic? Um, yeah. Do we know yet? Yeah. So the access centers, because they were public spaces, um, they were all recreation centers who are now hosting camps. <laughs> so they've moved fully into summer camp mode um, mm-hmm. and reopened all the camps for the kids here in a lot of, of those recreation centers. Um, so the access centers themselves um, are, uh, you know, phasing out. But I think the sort of long term. So the city of Philadelphia is working on a larger digital equity strategy. Um, And I think we see um, the recreation centers as a key piece of that digital equity strategy, along with our libraries, because they are these critical spaces where um, digital access has been happening. Um, And so I think that they may not be called access centers, but they will be sort of retransformed into spaces where you can get computer access. Some of them you can get training. You may be able to in a, um, get your digital get digital navigation services. 
maybe if we're if we can build it out, some tech support. So these are, you know, what we hope that these are spaces that could really be built out to create that network yeah. um, across Philadelphia. Yeah. Last question for each of you. I was hoping to just sort of do a a, a, a go around, assuming assuming y'all can give me another m- minute of your time. I think people want to help. People want to, um, if if nothing, um, if they can't sort of give, whether of themselves or financially or whatever else it is, I think people want to at least know um, how to inform themselves about what the issue is, right? So my my question to each of you is, if, if you could, um, it, you know, if there was a very short PSA that you could offer people who just don't know the issue but care and want to know where to look, but but it's like, oh, is it the provider? Is it people with – is it hardware? Is it tech support? Like um, if you could, from your perspective, like what's the most important PSA you could give to an audience of folks who cares a lot and maybe – sometimes gets lost in the sauce of like, I just don't know who can solve this problem. You know, one of the questions I get a lot from people that are interested and find out about these programs is, is how can I help? Um, Often they have computers they want to donate. So connecting people to some of the nonprofits that are working on actually refurbishing computers is a big, a big thing that we help. We do. We say, this is something that definitely one thing, you know, if you have extra computers, if you have an old Chromebook, these are things that we could refurbish in give out to the family, you know, out to the community. So that is something that's really concrete that we can tell people about. Um, but also, it's also just sharing the word about the programs we do have out there, right? So we really try to create this community connections for, you know, to, for people to really kind of have a network to share out the information, share out to families, you know, that need might need PHL Connected or might need a digital navigator to help as well. So th- those are the kind of the two things that I focus on right now is, you know, if you have a computer to donate, here's where to where, where to send it or where, where to go to drop it? it off. Yeah. Where, where then, should they send it? Where should they send it? Yeah. So, um, and Juliet can speak to this as well. We had a program called donate PHL, I believe mm-hmm. is the name of it. Or donate tech PHL, right? PHL donate tech. <laughs> PHL donate tech. Sorry. So we had a program, the city created a program called PHL donate tech. And we worked with a, uh, a company that would come, would pick up your technology at your house. So that you can actually put a request in there. Um, the program was the company was called Retriever, and they would take those devices and and send them out to different nonprofits that were doing the refurbishing, and those nonprofits would then um, provide them to the digital navigator programs amongst other places as well, Great. so that we could then have computers to distribute to our communities. Great. So that was that was something that the city of Philadelphia did a great job of actually creating this network where we could actually easily send people, you know, here's how to do this, here's how to donate your technology. This is a w- really concrete way to assist, you know, and, and to make a difference as well. Yeah, I will put links to that in the in the show notes, and just make pe- make sure people can access if they're interested and in the area. Um, Juliet, you want to go next? So I think that the biggest thing that we can do to support this issue, if people asked what can they do, is to kind of drill home this message that. If we're going to close the digital divide, we have to address the need for devices, the need for internet connectivity, and the need for digital skills. If we're not addressing all three, we're not going to get there. 
That's my PSA. We have to consistently drill that, drill that, drill that into any sort of funding stream, any sort of federal, state, local levels. We have to address all three. Um, and then I would point them to the NDIA, which is the best source for all of the information they need to know about digital equity. Great. And I'll stop there and, and hand it over to Pop. Great. And I will link to the NDIA, which stands for National Digital Inclusion Alliance. Yes. Perfect. And I will link link to them in the show notes as well. Uh, well, first of all, thanks, Juliet, for the assist. It's very kind of you. Um, right. Like, I think that's what we need to do now, right? Like, I think collectively, the three of us, like we've we've all been doing this work since long before the pandemic. We've sort of we've already known that digital equity is a problem, digital inclusion is a problem. I think that what to do now, now that COVID has shined a light on these massive, you know, social inequities, uh, you know, to go to rewind a little bit, looking at like how income impacts who doesn't adopt internet at home like that's that's a that's a big problem so what we do now now that people are interested and they're figuring out like hey this is a problem i've personally experienced home bandwidth issues for instance is to really take advantage of this moment now that there's a lot of attention on digital equity and as juliet was saying educate people on the issues in the digital inclusion world, we talk about, we, we use this analogy of the three legs of the stool a lot, mm-hmm. right? So it, it, it is that, it's the broadband devices, digital literacy. For me, because of my background is so heavily steeped in the digital literacy piece, I will say to, I think what needs to happen next is for people to, you know, a digital navigators program is, is an example of this, but to really dig down on those digital literacy issues and those digital literacy skills. Again, it's like that one-to-one interaction. What does someone do after they get their hotspot? What mm-hmm. does someone do after they get their Chromebook? What if they don't know how to use those? Like, yeah. who can they call um, when when they have these you know pieces of plastic in their hands? So I will just close by doing a little plug for a bill that NDIA is fully supportive of. Um, it's called the Digital Equity Act. It's introduced by... Uh, Patty Murray, I think she's from Washington. She's a Democrat. Um, it's bipartisan, so it's also supported by Rob Portman from Ohio, a Republican. It was originally introduced in 2019. Murray and Portman have just reintroduced it into the House uh, last week. It proposes to authorize more than a billion dollars in federal grant funding over the next five years to support digital inclusion programs throughout the U.S. Uh, and, and territories. So all of which is to say, there's a lot of new attention. There's a lot of new funding for this. So like, let's let's take advantage of this. Right? This is this is the moment we've been waiting for. So let's let's get some stuff done. Thank you, uh, all three of you, for spending some time on this this morning. I really appreciate it, and um, I hope you'll keep doing what you're doing, and that we can also check in. Um, you know the data from June to March, I'd love to check in, you know, when we, when we can update and, um, and hear what does it look like a year from now? And, um, I really appreciate you shedding some light on this issue and, and, uh, I think folks will get a ton from the conversation. So thanks. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thanks for this opportunity, Mark. For more info about advertising with us, sponsoring the show, or if you have story ideas you want to share, find me on Twitter at M.A. Lesser. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy. 
a guest in episode zero, alumni of two bomber nations, Ithaca and the Bronx, New York, and engineer of digital things and fresh beats. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. No such thing is produced by me, Mark Lesser. A learner like you and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org.